0: As you find your way back to your seats, I want to introduce everyone to my friend Allison who's going to read our text this morning. Thank you, Ted.
1: Good morning. I'm bringing the teaching text today from 1 Timothy, verses 12 through 19. You can find this on page 1097 in the Shed Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord.
0: I never lose the one Oh the wonder of your mercy may I sing your hallelujah hallelujah amen may I never lose the one Oh the wonder of your mercy may I sing friends, the Lord be with you. Hey, my name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'll be honest, it's hard to imagine talking after we just sang amen. Like, that's the end, and now I got… That's okay. That's okay. We'll talk later. Um, <laughs> Hey, we're at week two of this new series focused on 1 Timothy. Welcome. If you weren't able to be with us last week when we kicked this off, please go back check out that teaching. Tim Nelson did a fabulous job of setting up and framing for us this ancient letter. He gave lots of really helpful context, the sort of who, what, where kinds of details that help us wrap our heads and hearts a little bit better around this text. It was so helpful. I'm not going to repeat those things because I would do a B minus job of what his A plus effort were. So please check that out. Um, And Tim, also he highlighted for us a couple of questions, key questions that I, I think, even without us agreeing as a teaching team, I think Tim highlighted questions that we should be answering every Sunday. And one of those questions, the primary one that I'm going to aim towards today is this question, what kind of church are we going to be? And I think this is a question that isn't just important for our little local community. I think all the scattered bodies of Christ around the world should be asking this question. Spiritually curious and skeptical people alike are probably waiting and wondering, how are we going to answer this question? What kind of church are we going to be? So... uh, that's what I'm gonna to try to aim at today. Thanks, Tim, for teeing us up with that. Um, we're gonna get right into this letter, okay? First um, Timothy there's a little bit of debate around this, but we're going to say Paul wrote it. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, all right? And he wrote this. Apostle Paul was one of these people, a key figure in the early development of Christianity. He wrote a lot of letters. In fact, the second half of the New Testament populated almost entirely by letters that Paul wrote. Um, I found a while ago what I think is a helpful sort of general outline for Paul's letters. There's a lot of consistency in what Paul did and wrote. And so I found this outline, and it may be helpful for you as we think about as you read from letter to letter. This might be a good outline. So uh, begins. With, so Paul basically begins all of his letters with grace, some sort of greeting that is from Paul, but also from the Lord. In this letter, it's grace and mercy and peace together. Okay, and then Paul moves into the section like the "I thank God for you" sections. Um, And what happens here is Paul is basically saying um, there's this this sense of both gratitude and relationship that undergirds all of the letters that Paul writes. And then Paul encourages all the readers to hold fast to the gospel. Paul is aware that, that there are threats to being a faithful disciple. And Paul wants to highlight those and he's trying to encourage the readers not to waver. And then we come to this section. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. (laughs) And this is the spot in the... (laughs) It's awesome, isn't it? We get a glimpse that Paul gets worked up. Stuff is going down and Paul's worked up and he's trying to say to these people, quit it quit it already. He uses this flowery language. It gets kind of dramatic. You'll get a glimpse of this in a couple of minutes. And then finally the letters close with something like, hey, Timothy says hi. And what this does is it reminds us of the relationality of the faith. It reminds these letters that are sent to all these scattered churches across the then known world that you're not alone. That there are other faithful disciples, other people pursuing Jesus who are in this with you. I think this is a helpful way of understanding Paul's approach to letter writing I hope that that orientation for you is helpful today where we find ourselves is Primarily between beats two and three That's kind of where we're at in the letters so far. We're still really early in it We dip a little bit into four already just to get you excited But primarily that's where we're gonna be Okay uh, let's get into this. I'm going to approach today's teaching a little bit differently than what I normally do. I'm going to, I'm going to basically go verse by verse for all of the text. the rest of chapter one. It's, it's almost like a tiny little Bible study. There were so many things here, I couldn't narrow down one thing. So I'm going to give you like 17 little tiny sermons. Um, that's what's going to happen in the next couple minutes. Um, and so if you want a Bible, we're going we're to spend a lot of time like in the specifics. So either on your mobile device, on an actual, these are called books. If you want a physical form, we're going to do a little bit around this. Okay, let's get right into this. Um, verse 12 is what we're picking up today. First Timothy verse 12. It starts this way, Thanksgiving. If you remember the orientation I just gave you, that's a common starting place for Paul. Thanksgiving common spirit of gratitude. That will extend a lot through the rest of what we're reading. And then Paul, um, he starts to, he begins naming his loyalty to Jesus. When he writes that Christ Jesus, our Lord, this isn't just what we would say doxological. This isn't just a worship act. This is a political declaration that Paul is saying here, there's only one person I am loyal to. It's not the person who rules the city. It's not the emperor. I am loyal to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. And he's going to declare this loyalty two more times in this section, verse 14 and verse 17. We're going to see him returning to loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. And then finally, in this particular verse, um, Paul acknowledges that there's giftedness, that there's generosity that's been given to him. Jesus has given Paul strength. Jesus has considered Paul trustworthy, and Jesus has given Paul a role. This is risky. This is risky on God's part, not just for Paul, who we'll see in a minute. There are obvious risks giving Paul a job, but it's risky for every one of us. God's taking a risk by inviting every one of us to have a role. Because every one of us has been the recipient of strength, and every one of us been considered trustworthy by God, and every one of us have been given a particular kind of role, because God's kingdom is going to be realized in large part through the simple things that you and I do. Okay, verse 13, Paul begins with the phrase, even though. And then we get one of the glimpses, and this happens a lot in Paul's letters too, we get a glimpse where Paul begins to name the kind of unvarnished truth about himself. And Paul names that he's a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man. You notice kind of the escalating intensity as we move through that. We move from words to actions. Paul naming the unvarnished truth about himself. And yet, even in this verse, the spirit of gratitude continues because Paul begins, even though I was, and then he says, I was shown mercy. this may be the best part of the Bible. Even though I was fill in the blank, I was shown mercy. We could dismiss here probably What good news, what good news in verse 13, even though. Maybe that could be a devotional practice for you. Maybe consider this week, every single day, adopt some kind of writing practice and fill in the blank, even though I was. Fill in the blank and remind yourself that you have been shown mercy that those things are not the last word about you. It's good news. Okay, and then we come to what may be like a potentially puzzling phrase when Paul says, um, because I was, I was in ignorance and unbelief. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I don't think Paul is trying to let himself off the hook here. In fact, I read this, and I hear an echo of Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, um, it describes how Jesus has been led to the place called the skull, and there are two criminals with him. And Jesus and these two criminals are crucified together, and then Jesus speaks from the cross these unthinkable words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know. You might say they are acting in ignorance and unbelief. I think what's being communicated to us in this little phrase in first Timothy and in that spot in Luke 23 is it's a reminder of the mind-boggling forgiveness that comes from Jesus. Forgiveness that is given in really, really unlikely circumstances. Forgiveness is given from the cross, for goodness sake. And forgiveness and mercy which is extended to really, really unlikely people. I think that's where our attention is being drawn to here. It's a whole different sermon. Let's keep going. Verse 14. Are you keeping up? All right? Verse 14, Paul continues to recount sort of the source, the, the reason for his gratitude. He says, grace has been abundantly poured out on him along with the faith and the love of Jesus. Ab- what a f- abundantly poured out. What a wonderful phrase. Reminds me of Psalm 23. We covered a couple weeks ago in our mixtape series. That section where it says, my cup overflows, right? There's this abundance which is offered to Paul from Jesus. I think it's interesting uh, in this text how Paul talks in triads. At the very beginning, Paul combines grace and mercy and peace together. And then he talks about being a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And then here he talks about there being mercy and abundant grace and faith and love. It's as if Paul understands his life, even the least admirable parts of his life he understands his life as hemmed in or surrounded by God's goodness that for Paul his life is framed by more than just the bad things that he's done okay verse 15 Paul summarizes all of what he said up to this point with this trustworthy saying, essentially the very heart of the gospel story, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I think, again, Paul is trying to emphasize for us here, in case we have missed it, where our attention should be drawn. Our attention is supposed to be drawn to Jesus as the Savior, not Paul, the chief of sinners. The subject of these lines, the subject of this section of the letter, is not the person who wrote it. Paul, I think, is striving to constantly draw our attention back to the author and the perfecter of the faith. Paul is not the subject. The one who came into the world to save is who Paul is trying to draw our attention to. Verse 16, Paul highlights for the third time another triad. For the third time, the mercy that has been shown to him. We've sung about that a lot already today. And we get this really moving phrase, the immense patience of Christ Jesus. It should remind us of the ways in the Old Testament, um, the writers were talking about the steadfast love of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're unlimited. They're immense. This immense patience its such a beautiful phrase. And there are a bunch of different translations for it. I love all of them. There's um, unlimited patience, utmost patience, perfect patience, good old King James. It's all long-suffering. However we try to define it, it's hard because it's so other Paul's describing a kind of patience that it's impossible for we as humans to embody or to extend to one another. This is a patience that's impossible to categorize, but he's trying to testify to what he has experienced through the mercy of Jesus an immense patience in the face of all of Paul's troubling behavior. Paul writes that this mercy and this patience, it's to serve as an example. Because if God can mercifully and patiently transform Paul from this bitter opponent of the way into a trusted apostle and evangelist, if God can do that, then, in the words of N.T. Wright, there is nobody out there. No heart so hard, no anger that is so bitter that it remains outside the reach of God's patient mercy. Thanks be to God. And this remarkable truth, it causes Paul to break out into this hymn of praise. Tim, last week, briefly uh, gave us a glimpse here of verse 17. Um, We find this spirit of gratitude, which has been consistent through all these verses, leading Paul to a kind of outburst, seemingly from nowhere comes these words again emphasizing the subject of these verses the subject of this sentence a section of the letter the subject is the king eternal for some of us it's that we're reminded we have the melody of that old scottish hymn immortal invisible god only wise comes right here from this spot in first timothy so these first six verses, the ones that we had read for us today, themselves, they, hopefully they leave us with awe and praise and wonder and gratitude. But we need to finish chapter 1 because there are a couple verses that Allison didn't read for us. Now, before I read them for us, before we look at them, before you look too far ahead, let me talk a little bit about one of the, one of the aspects that's hard about reading and thinking about and understanding these letters in the New Testament. Because what, what we have here is we don't have both sides of the correspondence, We only have one side. It's just kind of like hearing one side of a phone call. Have you experienced that? You know there's more going on here, but I only know one side of the conversation. I can't get the whole scope. Or maybe it's like this. Have you ever walked into a room and you realized when you walked in, something heated was going on? Do you know what I'm talking about? Something is going down and you realize you walked into it. But at this point, there's only one person talking, right? This person is kind of animated actions and maybe the volume is turned up. The atmosphere is certainly charged. You know something's happening. But at this point, it's just one person's narrative. It's one person's voice. And these letters are kind of like that for us. We only get the one voice. We know in these letters that Paul is responding to something and to someone specifically. But we don't get that side. We don't know that other side's questions. We don't know that other side's interpretations. We don't know that other side's narration. And that can be hard for us and it can sometimes be confusing when we come across some things that are heated when we come across some things that might feel dramatic, when we come across some things that feel a little like, I don't know what to do with that, I wish I had the other side, hold on to that because we're going to enter into territory where we may feel like we don't entirely know what's going on. Excited? Great, verse 18. Paul begins, and he addresses Timothy as his son. And the reason why I think this is important is because we need to remember that Paul and Timothy, this is not just some sort of transactional agreement. Paul and Timothy are in like a mentor-mentee relationship, but Paul is invested in Timothy. He is, there's intimate language here. Paul wants to see Timothy thrive and to flourish, in this Ephesian church and in his, liter- his uh, calling to lead them. And then Paul talks about this command that Timothy has been given. This brings it back to last week. Go back there and look at that. Verses 3 through 11. Timothy is given a command. The command is that other people, certain people should no longer teach false doctrine. Timothy is in some ways a shepherd or a guardian of godly truth. And Paul knows that this is a tough job, which is why he uses the language around this being a battle. He wants Timothy to do this job really well, but he knows that it's tough. He's going to need to fight well. And then verse 19, Paul longs to see Timothy also hold on to faith and a good conscience. It's not hard for me to imagine the Apostle Paul, the blasphemer, The persecutor, the violent man, having a tough time personally preserving a good conscience. And so I imagine Paul saying to Timothy, don't make the mistakes that I made. And therefore, you can avoid the lingering consequences that are associated with those mistakes. He wants good things for his son, Timothy. And then there's a turn in the text. Paul names that there are some people who have rejected the faith, and these people have really suffered. And he uses this evocative language of shipwreck. Paul knows something about shipwrecks. In Paul's life, it happens three or four times. And here, Paul takes this language of shipwreck, and he uses it to describe what's happening spiritually to people. He talks about people who are shipwrecked because of false teachers. False teachers are shipwrecked, and those who have been seduced by these false teachers are shipwrecked. They have been blown off course. And then, in verse 20, Paul names some of these false teachers. Now imagine, imagine with me you're sitting in a room much smaller than this, and the letter to 1 Timothy is being read for the first time. And we come to this spot and Paul starts dropping names. Imagine how that feels. (laughs) Imagine you're there and you're like, oh, oh, we're going there. Oh, who else is gonna get named today? I'm imagining sort of the intensity of that moment when Paul starts to actually name examples. So, Paul names two people. He names Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, we know nothing about Alexander. We know a bit more about Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus gets mentioned also in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Hymenaeus is mentioned along with someone else, an, another false teacher, um, as spreading, Paul says, he's spreading something that it's, it's uh, he's teaching something that spreads like gangrene. How about that? An infection. And Hymenaeus is teaching something that has to do with the resurrection of the body. It doesn't matter what it is exactly. What does matter is that the implications were that we don't have to obey any moral codes. We don't have to do anything. Uh, one of the, the, uh, the other uh, phrases in 2 Timothy is, that you t- is an encouragement to turn away from wickedness. Well Hymenaeus would say we don't need to worry about that. And Paul. Again, whatever the specifics of the teaching and whatever its implications are, Paul is really feeling some kind of way about this teaching. Paul considers it really dangerous. It's destroying the faith of some. It's leading some people to be spiritually shipwrecked. It's leading to a kind of moral and spiritual disaster. Paul feels strongly about this situation, and so he continues. In verse Timothy, verse 20, and he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Uh, Come again, Paul? Uh, Can you, would you repeat that? You're doing what to what people? Handing them over to Satan? Here's one of these moments where we might feel like we're missing the totality of the conversation in the context. Is Paul being literal? Is he being serious here? Is Paul just being dramatic? Did Paul write something that he didn't actually mean? It was just a heated moment? I think we have some other clues. We can look to some other places and help to fill in the gaps for us just a bit. First Corinthians, it's another letter to a different church. Chapter 5, there's a section where Paul is, um, he's naming in this particular church that there are some distressing sexual sins. And Paul recommends to this church, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, he recommends that a particular man be handed over to Satan. Same words, same language different context. Now at the very least, I think what this says to us is that Paul meant something specific. Is that he had something in mind. This wasn't a slip of the tongue in a heated moment. He's used this previously. He's using it in other contexts. So what do we do? with this hand them over to Satan bit. Come back next week and Ashley is going to answer that for us. Let's pray. (laughs) Okay, in both 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, when we see this phrase, hand over to Satan, there's something that comes after it, which I think gives us a clue about what we might do with it. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, Paul encourages the Corinthian church, hand this man over to Satan so that, that the, for the destruction, next slide there, hand him over for the destruction of the sinful nature so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In 1 Timothy Paul says that he hands over Hymenaeus and Alexander so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. So what we get here, we get a sense that for Paul, this is not a power play. This is not just simply a punishment. That Paul has a remedial purpose in mind, There's a remedy, he has a goal, he has an aspiration for healing to take place. That Paul imagines restoration, healing. Now I know this still sounds so dramatic, so intense, so over the top, but Paul knows all about dramatic, intense, and over the top. Paul knows what a dramatic, intense, over-the-top experience can do to turn your life around. Paul's own experience on the way to Damascus was dramatic and over-the-top and intense. And the result of that was Paul's radical turning in another direction. Paul, who was a blasphemer, wants for Alexander and Hymenaeus to no longer be blasphemers. What initially seems so intense and even violent, this handing over to Satan, I gotta tell you, the more I have sat with this, the more loving it feels to me. And let me give you a glimpse why. The second letter to the Corinthians, there's, a, there's some talk about a man who was punished. And I can't help but wonder if it's the same man in First Corinthians that's being talked about here. But Paul begins to address what's happened to this particular man. And he acknowledges that there was something done to this man that was really difficult, that was really heavy, that was really hard. It's generally understood, by the way, I should have said this before, that this kind of handing over to Satan, it was, it's probably kind of like some sort of excommunication. It's like a, it's a distancing from the worshiping community. It's, a, a, it's a, a, a shunning of some kind. And Paul's recognizing this is a harsh thing. It's really difficult. It's a tough punishment. Um, and so in chapter 2 of Second Corinthians… Verses 7 and 8, Paul starts talking this. He says to the church, forgive this man. Welcome him back. Comfort him so that his sorrow will not be overwhelming. And then in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 8, he tells the church, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I think what we're seeing here is we're seeing the aspiration of the handing over. That it's temporary. And that it leads to a kind of healing and restoration of the person, and then ultimately it will lead to the healing and the restoration of the whole community. Paul, yes, is taking something very seriously, but his desire is for it to all be brought back together. So back in 1st Timothy, I think Paul's urging his son Timothy, don't go down the route of these teachers. Also, don't uh, take seriously the actions that lead people to be spiritually shipwrecked. Fight the good fight. Hold on to the faith. And thus ends chapter one. So what do we do with all that? Once again, come back next week. Ashley will tell you. Um, I want to return to that orienting question. What kind of church are we going to be? And I'm going to very briefly, in light of all of these ancient words, offer two encouragements or aspirations or challenges or answers whatever you want to say in light of these nine verses we've just looked at so simply here we go first let's be a church that centralizes and celebrates the good news of the gospel that was a little more muted than i hoped Let's be a church that celebrates and centralizes the good news of the gospel. Let's be a people who are routinely talking about the unlimited patience of Jesus. Let's be a people who are routinely celebrating the grace that has been abundantly poured out on all people. Let's be a people who are continually prioritizing the mercy and the love that we find in Christ Jesus. Let's be a people who are not ashamed to repeat this trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And let's centralize this story more than we centralize what is wrong with people, yourself included. Remember the point of these texts is not that we would remember Paul as a violent man. That's not the point of the text. We aren't intended to walk away from these verses thinking more about Paul, the worst of all the sinners. Now. I'm not saying that we don't take seriously sinful behavior and actions. I'm coming to that in answer too. What I am saying is we should be the kind of people who rally primarily around the good news of the gospel and that to be our primary orientation. Prioritizing. Pri- mm. prioritizing the categories of wrongdoing among us. When we do that, that will result in a prideful, insular, judgmental, dangerous, pharisaical collection of individuals. But when we centralize and we celebrate the good news of the gospel, that results in a Jesus people who erupt in praise. Let's be a church that centralizes and celebrates the good news of the gospel. Second, let's be a church that courageously loves people away from shipwreck. Now, I'm not advocating for some kind of modern version of handing over to Satan, whatever on earth that would even be and mean. What I am trying to say is this, friends, authentic, faithful love of neighbor will always require you to be courageous. It will require you to create, courageously speak truth when it's necessary. It will require you to courageously. Why have I chosen that word? It will require you to courageously name destructive patterns and habits and systems. It will require you to courageously. (laughs) It will require you with courage (laughs) to name, (laughs) to make difficult decisions at times. It will require you to have courage in a whole range of complicated relational territories. But that is faithful love of neighbor. This all is done with an aim, a very specific aim, a specific aim toward healing, a specific aim toward restoration of fellowship and relationship. It's a desire to see someone redirected from error. A desire to see someone redirected and stopped from being blown off course. It looks like loving someone and saying, I love you too much to passively allow you to become shipwrecked. And we bring ourselves to these interactions, to these relationships with the posture, knowing that we are someone who has been a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent person, a gossip, stubborn, self-seeking, lustful, judgmental. On and on and on. We bring ourselves knowing that that is true, but we also bring ourselves knowing that each one of us is ultimately defined as someone who has been shown great mercy, great love, poured out in abundance by Christ Jesus. So let's be a church that courageously loves people away from shipwreck, and let's be a church that celebrates and centralizes the good news of the gospel. This table that we come to every single week reminds us that God loves us, loved us so much to refuse to allow us to remain shipwrecked. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet shipwrecked, Christ died for us. And the story that is amplified, that is turned up to 11 at this table is the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And let's pray in a spirit of thanksgiving how right, how good, and how joyful it is at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And so we praise you and we join our voices with angels and with archangels, with the entire company of heaven who forever surround your throne singing this hymn of praise to the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord god of power and might heaven and earth are full of your glory hosanna in the highest blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest and so holy spirit we pray today you would not only descend on these simple elephants elephants elements Should I start entirely over again? <laughs> the beginning of the service. Holy Spirit, would you not only descend on these simple elements and make of them for us spiritual food that would sustain, but would you descend on our hearts? And those places among us that are facing with a kind of clarity the ways that we have been, that are facing with clarity the difficulty of embracing and accepting a grace that has been abundantly poured out, the hearts in this room that are longing to be rescued from shipwreck, Those in this room who need to be saved from judgmental spirit and from constantly prioritizing what people are like based on the bad that they do. And for all the range in between, God, on these hearts, would you descend today, spirit and would you soften and would you open up space and would you speak and would you shape, and would you lead us, as you shine into our darkness, also be the light unto our path. Feed us, Spirit, and give us courage to follow, and amen. So Jesus tells this story, that on the night that He was betrayed, Remember, Jesus is sitting at a table of betrayers, people who will run away, deny that they know him, who will flee when their lives are potentially at stake. Jesus shares this table with them, and he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body, given for all you who are shipwrecked take and eat. And in a similar way, he took a cup and he blessed it and he gave it to them and he said, take, drink, be thirsty no more. And whenever we take this into our bodies, that we tell the story again, this beautiful good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we do our best to summarize this wonderful story with these winsome brief phrases that have been handed down to us from previous disciples, previous people who sought to be faithful. And so we say them together, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So I invite you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Tables around the room here. If it would be helpful to be prayed for, there'll be a couple of us willing to pray over in this back corner for you. You can light candles here as physical symbols of your prayer. You can write prayers, put them in the prayer wall, know that our staff this next week will be praying for you. Let's linger for a couple of minutes in this great mercy of God. Let's re-centralize this great story as we take it into our bodies. So come, take and eat.